Welcome to Rehab This. It isn't your run-of-the-mill podcast. It's tailor-made for PTs and PT practice owners looking to level up their game. This is your host, Justin Stiver, doctor of physical therapy and co-founder of Total Therapy Florida and the Active Adult. All right, Mason, welcome to Rehab This, our uh, PT-focused podcast. Uh, welcome on the show. Uh, we're happy to have you. Uh, why don't you start off kind of just talking about yourself a little bit for me? Love doing that, yeah, as you know. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Mason Staggs. I am the Director of Clinical Education for Total Therapy Florida. Uh, one of my roles within the company is to uh, – look into research and stay on top of the latest evidence and make sure that our other providers are also having good access to that information. And not only that, but having mentoring and hands-on training for, you know, advancing their development professionally. So getting, uh, being able to do that is, uh, is really a, a rewarding experience for me because I think it, it brings a lot of my, my skill sets and my talents to, to the company as a whole. Um, and just you know, in the light of making sure everybody is is staying up to task and and doing their best, what they can do clinically. Okay, so um, let's rewind and kind of where, how long have you been a P, a PT for? Uh, where did you graduate? Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, and um, what other roles did you have before coming in as director of clinical education? Yeah, so I I graduated from the University of Saint Augustine in 2018. So I've been practicing for about five years now. Uh, after I graduated from PT school, I pursued uh, residency training with a specialty in orthopedics. I was at uh, USF in Tampa, and that was that was really kind of when I look back, that was kind of the driving force of doing what I do now. It uh, impressed upon me the importance of uh, staying on top and continuing to learn as much as you can and develop that that intrinsic skill of reflecting on your own your own work. And that's been kind of a driving force for me moving forward. Um, so after I graduated from the residency program, I uh, sat for my OCS, uh, orthopedic clinical specialist exam, and uh, then moved into my current company, which is Total Therapy Florida. and have been trying to apply my skills in the, the best way possible there. And you spent some time as a clinic director. So you you started as a as as a staff therapist with the plans to kind of move you quickly into the clinic director role. So um, and you manage your own team for what about two or three years, right? Yeah, about three years. And yeah, that was a really rewarding experience in and of itself. That was uh, you know, more so than I had anticipated, I went into it with a little bit of uh, apprehension, never having a leadership position. But I think that uh, role in and of itself really helped to kind of mold me into the the person and the, the professional that I am today. So a lot of good skills and a lot of good takeaways from my time in that in that role. Well, I certainly feel like you've accomplished a lot in the five years. It seems like it's been longer than that. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so what a... Um, have you always had the the drive to to be an an a well educated therapist or or did that happen you know during residency or you know walk walk back to kind of when that when that started yeah so i think just kind of an inherent quality of mine as i just 
I have a, a very unquenchable thirst for knowledge. I'm always looking to learn no matter what the what the field, what the topic is. So I think that just kind of bleeds over into my professional career. And when I graduated from PT school, I, I still felt like I wasn't I felt like I was capable of treating patients, but not to the best extent that I knew I was that I potentially could. So then that in and of itself is what kind of drove me to pursue residency training. I was like, this this looks like the path made for me. And how did you choose USF? I looked into a lot of a lot of options because there's there's several uh, hundred like residency programs throughout the country. And I looked at it in a different, through a different lens as to when I was applying to PT school because those are a little bit more generic. They pretty much cover the same accredited content. You're going to get the same basic education with a little flair here and there, depending on the philosophy of the university and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas the residency, I looked at it more as not me fitting the mold that they had, but does that fit what I'm looking for in my own development? So that's kind of the start of that process of looking internally and, and figuring out like, what do you want to get out of this and finding something that is in line with that. So is it what they say about you true, that you were such a good student in PT school that you never got to be on, a, on an exam? That is true. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. So for the mere mortals out there, like, like us that, uh, use that that term C's get degrees okay how <laughs> what um how reasonable is it how competitive is it for your average physical therapist that's just a an average or slightly above average therapist to get into one of these residency programs are they competitive i would say they're competitive in the sense that there's a limited number of them but there's also not that many people really applying for them because I, I think that's a big uh, kind of barrier that we find in our profession is residency is not required. And you look at the medical model, every physician has to do a residency and then they have to do a fellowship subspecializing in that area of content. Whereas for us, it's just kind of like, yeah, this is an option for you. And at least at the PT school I was at, they really didn't talk that much about it. Mm. Um, so I would say from a scarcity perspective, that's more of where the difficulty would be in getting in accepted into one. But I would by no means, it, would, it wouldn't preclude you or rule you out from getting in if you just had an average grade point average. So they're looking at things beyond that. They're, they're looking for that drive to learn and to, to, to further yourself. Okay. I, I mean, it's a very common thing for PTs to, to want to pursue the OCS degree or, or, I mean, specialty as you, as you, as you progress your way through, through actually navigating your field as a PT, but you kind of did it off the bat, right? The, the whole point of the residency program is to be able to sit for your OCS afterwards, have all the required hours mm -hmm. and, th and things like that. Yeah. It's all kind of baked in okay. to that. And how, how soon after you graduated your residency program, did you sit for your OCS? So I took it, I believe a month or so after I had graduated from, maybe a couple months after I had graduated from the program. Okay. And so fast forward back to today, um, you have a relatively newer role as director of clinical education and you're overseeing all seven clinics at Total Therapy Florida, kind of from a, and you're, are you, are you acting more as a professor to the PTs out there? Are you acting more as, as a liaison or a mentor? How, how would you describe your dynamic between 
the physical therapists that are practicing and you traveling around to the, all the different clinics? Yeah, so it's a little bit of all of those things wrapped into one. It's, it's, it's catering it to what that person needs it to be. So uh, based on some of the feedback that I've gotten and the people that I've worked with so far, a lot of it has been that hands-on mentoring. It's like, hey, I have this patient. This is what we've been working on, but I'm still kind of struggling with this. And then I work with them, and we kind of brainstorm and, and kind of co-treat. So in that regard, it's more that mentoring and, and getting my, my thoughts out and getting to see it in action. Whereas some people, it's like, hey, uh, we're working on – I have a lot of patients that are – we're treating for cervical spine issues, and I'm, I don't really feel like I have the good hands-on skills to, to manage that effectively. Can you show me some techniques? Yeah, sure. And that's where I put my professor cap on and demonstrate this is why we're doing this, this is how you do it, and kind of give some, some – you know, shed some light on in that regard. So it's kind of what that person needs it to be. Okay, so you're kind of acting as the professor without having to go – work for a college university and teach a bunch of kids that and not treat patients you know and, I, and we've spoken in the past and that was kind of important to you is that you continue to stay immersed in the clinical education but also treat patients at the same time and, yeah. and continue to hone your skills as a pt because there's you know there's a big disconnect there's a big difference i should not really disconnect because it's known but from from the the style and and the personality of a, a PT that's a full-time professor in a university, and then say your excellent PT or director in the clinic too. So you, it's kind of cool that you get to merge those together. Yeah. And and do that both because I would me personally I wouldn't love to teach in a university because it's not necessarily real world right and. Yeah. So talk a, uh, yeah, on yeah and, and I would say for me, like I would enjoy doing the extremes of either of those. I love being in the clinic and working and being a provider, but I, it also tickles my brain when I get to nerd out and go over the science and the, the application on a more like academic level. So I think like me being in the role I'm in, I can kind of fuse those together because I would say majority of people don't want to sit for a lecture. They've been practicing for three, four, five, 10, 20 years. They don't have the, the tolerance to, to sit and listen to lectures and, and, and ingest information that way. They've been doing things for you know an extended period of time. They have experience to rely upon. How can I best uh, add to that? So that's, that's kind of the, the, one of the more beneficial parts of what I do, one of the things I like the most about it. One of the things that drives me crazy about the PT industry in general is the differences in the um, level of skills of one PT and one one office versus across the road in the other office. I, the reason it drives me crazy is because I look at, you know, I look at it as if they're doing the 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 poor skilled PTs and. We'll talk about this later, but it's not always your clinical knowledge that makes you a poor PT in, in my mind. But just kind of the, the name that, um, all, let's just call them old school, um, since we're talking about clinical education, is, is, is the offices and the therapists who haven't developed themselves um, and they haven't, haven't sharpened their tools based on all the latest clinical research and evidence out mm -hmm. there. And they haven't talked amongst their peers in a critical mindset to to advance their own skill set, and 
so and they're practicing like you just said five ten twenty years later and say it's 20 years later they're doing a lot of the same stuff they were doing 20 years ago well we know yeah, that a lot's changed in that time a frame a lot has a changed lot. and not only that but just if, if you're not changing at all i bet you 20 years ago if you could record that person treating they're probably better 20 years ago than than they are today because <laughs> you kind of fall into your own biases and all that crap right yeah absolutely so so that drives me nuts because when you have a pt some of the the biggest hurdle sometimes is is that patient that's already had physical therapy and already made up their mind that physical therapy isn't going to help their condition so their their physician sends them to pt with us and they kind of come in with that your preconceived notion that they're not going to get better because i've already tried it and they look at pt as kind of a commodity and you're just another another service provider in that commodity field so um i believe that you're doing something in the clinics that's gonna that's gonna help those therapists that because we all know that's not you don't have time to to be the best PT ever if you're working a full time job yeah. outpatient orthopedic setting I mean you're getting you're working 45 50 hours per week with a family at home and everything else right so I think uh, you're doing a great thing by being that person who absorbs and spends this time doing the research and kind of packaging what you think needs to be done and giving it to the team in in small small bites easy to, to you know easy to understand right is, is that kind of what your mindset is or yeah absolutely yeah i think uh like having that resource to take in the brunt of that material but like i can i can do kind of the sifting and the filtering and be like okay look at this study look at this group of this piece of information and it's like, well, this part's important. This part's not. This is what they need to know. They can implement this tomorrow. So it's kind of taking that and, like you said, condensing it, hit the uh, hit the high points, take what's valuable from that, and then make that standard practice, have everybody abreast of that. And I, I know I'm not going to make a lot of friends by saying this, but there's a lot of a lot of shitty PTs in, in this area. Mm-hmm. So, but what makes... What what in your mind? What makes a shitty PT versus versus an average PT versus an excellent PT? Yeah, so, I mean, so like touching on what you said before, like uh, just not having that desire to to forward yourself and and grow your skills. That just shows laziness and a lack of dedication to your craft. I think that's just. I mean, th- th- take PT off the table. That's just a a terrible quality of being a human if you're not trying to grow and develop and and be better than what you are today Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean that's that's a big uh a big kind of pet peeve of mine is when somebody they encounter a situation and they just either you know just kind of run someone through the same routine that they give to everybody that's got that condition or that doesn't show any sort of like critical thinking or analysis of that person um, that that's one, and then you got the other that just does it because they don't know any better, like the ignorance versus the laziness. I think like both of those are like just equally irritating. Yeah. And um, how important are like the soft the soft skills side of, of it? Could you could you get by with um, mediocre you you mediocre starting skill set as a therapist as a clinician but have excellent excellent you know 
all the soft skills. I'm going to call it rapport building. I'm going to call it being excellent at patient buy-in because I, I kind of look at it as two different, two different skills that a therapist has to have to be excellent. One of them is, is you have to have that database in your brain and be able to organize it and, and access it quickly versus all your, or your clinical reasoning skills. Mm-hmm. But then you also, you have your personality and just soft skills. So that's the biggest thing as, as a person hiring from outside, I, that's, I can see that right away, not the clinical skills side. I almost have to just, unless you're going to have them treat on, on an interview basis and, and watch them pretty detailed, you got to kind of assume that everyone's got a starting skill set yeah. at some point, right? Yeah. So if you're going in there and you're mentoring um, a therapist, which one's more important to you, the soft skills or the clinical skills? Yeah, I think that goes back a little bit to one of the other points you were making. But I, uh, yeah, I, I think if I had to give more weight to it, I would honestly say the, the those soft skills that you say that you mentioned, like being able to connect with a patient and level with them, communicate with them in a way that gets your point across and gets them to buy into the process, um, because that's not something that we are taught in school. We don't have that class in, right. in school or that track of knowledge. That's something that is either just inherent. Some people just have that natural skill and charisma, but it's, it's a learnable trait. Like that's something that you can definitely cultivate and, and broaden your horizons with. And I would say that that is something that a lot of people are lacking in and that when that's lacking, the lack of knowledge also shows it becomes a much more evident. So I would say you can get by with being like, like you said, mediocre, average baseline level of, of clinical skills. But if you're not able to kind of bridge that gap, meet that patient where they're at, then it's, it, you're going to not, you're not going to be an effective therapist. Whereas the opposite wouldn't necessarily be true. Like if you're just, you, you got like huge encyclopedia in your head, you know, exactly, you know, what to do on that clinical tissue specific level, but you have a bad relationship with your patients, you're not able to convey that and communicate with them, they're not going to get anywhere because they haven't even crossed the threshold. Does that, is that present in, in, in the evidence today is, does it suggest soft skills at all when it, when when you're reading research articles about the psychosocial aspect of recovery and outcomes is, is even if it's probably hard to measure, right? There's no metric for, someone that's a dumbass and can't talk to anybody <laughs> but there's but then so how do you measure that right with yeah some kind of personality test maybe I, oh I yeah know. they got they have plenty of those there's plenty of like personality tests like you can look at different aspects of like openness to experience and uh different parameters of uh, agreeableness and that sort of thing so yeah I mean, if you really wanted to dive into the research but is that being talked that. about in in no. pt evidence no okay. not really hmm. that's interesting because and anecdotally, in my experience, uh, when I'm when I'm watching a therapist, and I, I laugh about it, but when I'm watching a therapist getting eaten alive by a, a tough <laughs> patient, and we've all been there, right? He's getting chewed up yeah. by that by that person. It's usually not that they said something that the patient knows is untrue or wrong. They it's usually something totally non PT related, and the that therapist, for whatever reason committed the 
the, they, they let the patient know that they had some kind of weakness or some kind of insecurity in their personality and mm-hmm. they didn't feel confident there and they watched their confidence wane. And then as soon as that happens, that's like a shark to blood, man. Yeah. Like, it's they crazy. Will crush you. So is that something? So when you're, when you're, when you're working with the teams out there, is that something that you're addressing or you just kind of think in your head, Oof, that person's, uh, got mediocre at best soft skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to struggle or are you, how are you sitting them down? If you were to see that, what would you say to a therapist that you're kind of working with about that? Yeah, I, I would definitely bring it up to them and I would, I would kind of frame it in more of the, the terms of like seeing what their approach is and kind of re, like reverse engineering. It's like, okay, this was the conversation you had with the patient. You said this, and this is kind of the tone you had kind of analyzing it a little bit. It's like, if, if maybe if you had spun it a little bit more, like put a collaborative spin on it, that's typically my go-to approach is, you know, I kind of interject myself as a, as a team member with that patient. And I feel like that's a good strategy because it gets them to buy in and that you're, you're kind of working together to solve this objective problem. It's not, you know, trying to, to fix them. It's we're, we're working toward a solution toward this. So that's kind of the approach I would take with somebody that's maybe having a hard time communicating or you have a, a, a patient that's just not an agreeable person and, and finding a way to, to kind of get to what's the underlying emotion that that person is is really projecting. Sometimes we're, we're kind of we're fighting two, two different things because we, we know in our mind from a clinical standpoint what, what, the, what points we need to get that patient to. We need to get them from point A to point B to point C, to point D, to have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. But the patient doesn't know that and doesn't want to even believe that. And sometimes the patient wants to tell us that they they need to go to point F first, right? And uh, you can you can stop me at any time if you think that I'm, I'm full of shit or something, but, right. or if, 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 if you disagree with me. But I feel like the best PTs, uh, I'm trying to think of, of the way to describe it, but the best PTs, can get that patient from point A to point B even if they don't think that's the best route because they almost trick the patient into believing that they're following the path that they intended even though they're making them go towards it. For example, if you have a a patient that's very apprehensive to a certain type of exercise um, and we've, we've all had this happen to us when they come in here, they, they're, they have functional deficits. um, They, they, they can't stand up from their chair without using their hands, but they're saying, I, I can't, uh, the worst thing I can do is, is anything with strengthening because I tried that before and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've seen, seen PT struggle by trying to, to trying to pound that into their brain that they're wrong. Yeah. They do need strength. Square peg in a round hole. Yeah. Jam it in there. Right. Yeah. And that patient, I can just see it getting more resistant and more resistant. And then all of a sudden, that patient drops off after two or three visits because the, because the PT forced some strengthening on them. It, psychosocially, they had it in their mind they didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're going to be sore and, and struggle and blame every little thing that happens that they're probably already dealing with before that anyway. But now they're blaming it on the fact that that PT made them do something they didn't want to do. And then they drop off and then their outcome is is nil, right? Whereas... If you look at it from the long game, like you said, reverse engineer it. So let's reverse engineer the patient outcome. What we do know is in order to get someone stronger, it's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. 
and it's going to take repeti- you know, you know, all this repetition and consistency. So let's reverse engineer and say that you have 15 visits to, to get that done. Um, I need to get them at 15 visits into a mindset where they want to continue doing this, some of the stuff on their, on their own and they have a better uh, understanding of, of how they need to live their life a little bit differently to not fall back into that, that rut they were mm-hmm. in. So you got 15 visits to, to do that. If you can get them a little stronger in the meantime, that's, that's a bonus, right? But we got to at least get them started on the right step. Instead of saying, I need to get them there and visit two or one or three, saying, I just need to do it before 15, right? And if we're truly looking for what's best with our patients, then, then that's all that matters. It doesn't matter that you know something that they don't believe is true and we have to force it on them. So how, how, like besides having these conversations and having someone listen in on it, how, how do you get that point across to a therapist? Yeah, perfect. So I was just going to say, you're, like you said, looking at the long game, you're, 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 well, you're doing a little bit of both. You're looking at each treatment as, as kind of a battle within the war. Your end goal is to, you know, win that war by that 15th visit, get all these goals accomplished and knowing the person's kind of baseline status, you've, you've got your evaluation, you've got your, your assessments on impairments that you need to be targeting, which you should be having, you should be, uh, having those like as specific as possible. You should know, like, I want to work on improving this muscle strength or this, uh, bit of mobility or flexibility. So you have targeted impairments that you're tackling and then kind of looking forward to the end of that plan of care is like, okay, if I structure it this way and kind of make my steps out, this is what the end game looks like. So kind of having that long view of the process is beneficial, having that foresight. And then, then you can just kind of construct your, your treatment as you go along. Is it just learning from your mistakes or, you know, how, how do you, how do you expect someone to get good at this soft, at these, these soft skills? Is it, yeah. is it's, it learning from your mistakes and being kind of, you know, like maybe almost open to, you know, reflecting on how things could have gone better or how they did go well? Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's a big part of it is self-reflection and like, I think with any encounter that you have with a patient, there's an opportunity for self-reflection, metacognition, thinking about what you're doing. And okay, I did it this way. What if I had maybe done this? This might have gotten me a better response. Um, I think that's a crucial part of it. Just you know, whether we're making mistakes or not, I do think there's value in making mistakes because no one's going to be perfect all the time. Sure. As much as I have to tell myself that, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I think that you know, you'll make mistakes along the way, but as long as you take information from that, you're growing and you're you're making it better for the next person that you encounter. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's just kind of built into the into the nature of what we do is you're not going to be solid all the time, but as long as you can take something from that and hone that craft as you go along, you're doing sure. the right stuff. So, I'm going to change change topics a little bit and get back on the clinical education. I mean, what we were talking about is super important. I think we could probably have two or three more conversations on the soft skills. Sure. Maybe we will uh, down the road. But what what are some of your favorite 
resources um, readily available. You don't have to, you know, pay too much for a subscription or, mm-hmm. or, or what. Uh, what are your your great resources that you might suggest to a PT that is working in the outpatient ortho field that they should do on the weekends on their own time? Things like, like yeah. That. So areas that I've gotten a lot of resources and and uh, information from is the uh, American Orthopedic Physical Therapy uh, Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. That's through the APTA, and that's what I got my my training through when I was doing my residency. So that has a lot of great insights into orthopedic-driven uh, content. Uh, I'm also I also subscribe to JOSPT Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. So if you're treating those populations, then that's a those are great resources because that's constantly churning out new information and new research. Um, also, too, I mean, if depending on the clinician's uh, familiarity and comfortability with just kind of doing a a free article research dive. Um, I mean, you can you can make a lot of headway, and if you're, there's a specific topic, knowing what to put into, you know, like Google Scholar or PubMed to be able to, you know, tease out some some bits of information and being able to uh, digest that. But those are some some quick references that I like. Do you follow any PTs on Instagram or social media, you know, that you really think are pumping out good content? Or do you stay away from that kind of stuff? I, I don't. I actually don't have any, uh, any like, strict PTs that I, I follow or, or keep up with regularly. There's a couple of guys that I, I follow more for they, – they're, they're branded more as, like, fitness-oriented, okay. but they happen to be physical therapists because I think that lends actually a lot of credibility to what they're turning out. And I'll actually utilize some of their stuff for ideas and – uh, different uh, different methods of, of training and applying it. It doesn't always apply to our populations, but I mean, I think with anything, there's little kernels of of use that you can get from it. Well, down here in Florida, we we work with a lot of retired age people. I mean, in general, in the country, I think physical therapy. Last time I I checked, was the average age of a, the physical therapy patient in the whole country is 59 years old. Mm. So we're working with by the nature of our business, we're working with the adult population aging adult population is so if you're if you're following somebody that's more of a fitness and i'm assuming that they have a younger clientele yeah um what are some of the what are some of the things we need to think about if you're trying to apply some of those tactics or some of the things you're you're picking up from those those patients and those pts and applying it to our our population so one thing that i've really gotten more of an appreciation for is dosage of exercise because i think that's an overarching principle that applies to everybody like that's a that's a big theme in fitness and in training is what's uh how are we dosing these exercises you want it within a certain rep range for strength gains versus hypertrophy versus coordination and skill building so you can still take that same principle because the modality is the same it's exercise taking that principle we can definitely apply that to our our people that we treat and i think that's something that's like largely overlooked i see way too many three sets of 10 on lots of exercises so 
kind of drilling down into like, what's the purpose of this exercise? What am I trying to get out of it? Mm. Dose it appropriately. So that again, that's kind of getting into the mentoring part of what I'm doing is making them just kind of think like, okay, why are we doing this exercise? Oh, we're treating their hip weakness by having them do this. Okay, why are you having them do three sets of 10 with that? Oh, um, I'm not sure. Because the last one wrote that? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, is, it, is it and they should be saying things like the last time I worked with them after 10 reps, they were, you know, it should be supported by some sort of response or some sort of goal. Right. To the that's patients. that's key is like and this goes back to whether the getting that patient buy in, like a lot of patients are inquisitive and they'll be like, well, why are we doing this? Why are you making me do this? Like, it's my shoulder. Why are we why are we working on my neck? you ought to have a rapid fire answer for exactly why you're having them do not just because well we're killing time or this is just something that the last person worked on with it you ought to have a very specific answer and reason for why you're doing that well you just bridge together the soft skills and the clinical skills together right there and that's Ooh, what baby and we didn't i mean i didn't talk, i didn't say this but i i believe that's what makes an excellent th- a therapist i think you can be a mediocre to good therapist with excellent soft skills and moderate, even slightly below average clinical skills. But I, because, but I, but I think that if you don't have the soft skills, you would have to have excellent clinical skills in order to that patient to actually see that. Um, if you have good clinical skills and and poor soft skills, then you're never even going to get a chance to shine. Right. Exactly. And, but, um, but that does bring up a really good point is that, you know, um, the the you know, the one didn't come before the other. You you kind of have to, and it's not one or the other. I know we split them up before. It's kind of just for the sake at of, the same time, yeah. right? And um, but they they do have to be be done in unison with each other in order to properly do it. And honestly, I see uh, PTs, and you tell me if you see this out there too, but. Because um, ultimately the point of this is to have this discussion so that other people can kind of you know, watch this this podcast and say, hmm, maybe I didn't think about that. Or maybe I'm going to be a little bit, little bit more self-critical when uh, I'm treating next time to see if I'm doing this or, or how I can improve. You yeah. know? Or maybe watch it and say, these guys are full of shit. Full of but shit. <laughs> but uh, the, what you said earlier was that um, a patient's going to ask you why you're doing something. And sometimes patients are just really eager to learn and want to know why. Yeah, sure. But most of the time they're asking you because they're already doubting you. Yeah, like what the hell? Why, and, why are we doing this? Yeah, why are we doing this? And most time they're going to say it after because like they notice that everything they're doing is three sets of 10. Mm-hmm. Is this just a made up number or is this just a, this is, you know, and if you don't have that answer, they're already doubting you and now they're testing you. And then if you don't have that answer, then you're Red in trouble, right? Yeah. So you can either either fake it and make something up or better case is just to not do that in the first place. And the best case, I believe, is to be telling people why you're doing something as they're doing it. Um, the other day I was, I was working with a student um, and uh, he – he was working with someone with balance and he was kind of walking around and he would do the, you know, he was doing static standing balance and then the patient's done three sets of 30 seconds. And then the patient's like, okay, what next? And he's like, well, hmm, let me think. Hmm. 
and uh, well, let's go over here. And and then he brought him over there and they did some other exercises. He, the stuff he was doing wasn't wrong, but just that demeanor, that, hmm, let me think. I'm, that patient is looking at it as like, well, this guy has no plan He's for just me. making this up yeah. as he goes. Yeah. yeah. Instead of saying, okay, well, we just did some static balance. I really wanted to get those, those ankles and the toes firing, you know, you, and then now we're going to move it to the next step. We're going to do some dynamic balance exercises where I'm going to have you moving a little bit more, maybe dual tasking, thinking about something else. Let's try and really get that. And, uh, and by the way, it's supposed to be challenging. If it was easy, you weren't going to, you're not really getting that much out of it, but if mm -hmm. it's super hard and, and, you, and you can't, can't do it at all, then we're probably not getting anything out of it here. So our, our goal is to make it challenging enough, but trust me, we're not doing it because we want to make you look like a fool. Yeah. Uh, that delivery versus, hmm, let's go over here and do this. this okay. Watch them do this. Yeah. Maybe you cue them once or twice on, okay, make sure you shift your weight. Uh, make sure you do that. Make sure you go heel to toe, but Good. then let's go to the next one. <laughs> that is so much less valuable where we're giving our value. Um, and the value in what we do is in the power of education as much as it is anything else. Yeah. Right. So, so being able to figure it out for yourself in your head while you're doing it and then kind of talking your patients through it. But by the way, you can't talk your patients through the exact same way as you would talk a therapist through. So you got to, you know, so it, yeah, as, as you're saying this, that's just like highlighting, there's multiple layers to this and that comes with experience. That's where a lot yeah. of that mistake making happens is like being able to me communicate with you, my fellow provider, and then turn right next to my patient and translate that and not get stumbled and choked up in your brain. Sure. So that's, that's in and of itself a, a skill. Absolutely. And I, and I would say too, like, uh, at the education, just like being able to deliver that competently and confidently, that's another great soft skill that needs to be cultivated and developed and knowing how much to give, how much to, what to say, what not to say, like not to overload them with information. Um, and knowing when that's appropriate. I mean, that's again, another layer to that, that skill set. Okay. So where do you see yourself um, in taking this job, director of clinical education? You're, you're kind of treating part-time and, and you're going around to the different clinics mentoring part-time. Um, is, there, is there anything um, that you're thinking about the you know, long-term future as far as where you're gonna bring your company, Total Therapy Florida, to the next level? Yeah, so kind of like said before, like looking ahead for uh, you know, kind of forecasting. Um, my my one of my goals would be that we get a some form of a an official residency program delivered through the company. I think that would be something not only tremendously valuable to the company itself, but to the profession as a whole. That kind of pushes the pushes the envelope forward a little bit as far as growing our our profession with your research when you were signing up for for the USF residency did you was there many private practices that weren't affiliated with the university or some kind of institution where there is there is there many of those offering residencies there's several and they're usually like large organizations uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head I can't think of any there's a few companies that offer residencies so they have multiple sites that's kind of the the uh, the drawing point or drawing in point for them is they have multiple sites and that you could potentially 
access to do that residency, but they typically, um, there's a tuition cost that comes with that. So you have to actually pay to do the residency okay. as opposed to being paid. So, so talking about that real quick, cause I'm sure that's important to people, right? Financially, we're, right. we're in a certain situation with your residency, were you paid during that residency? I was, yeah, it was basically like a, like a half salary because okay. I was, I was treating in a clinical setting for roughly 30, 32, 35 hours a week. So almost full time, but the rest of the, of my time was spent studying, uh, teaching. I had a position in the, in the DPT faculty, okay. teaching lab assistant, uh, doing my own research, uh, that sort of thing. So like my responsibilities were kind of spread out, but the what would you say the total hour covered. commitment is mm. weekly, weekly 60 plus. Okay. So it's a big commitment. It's not something that's for everybody. That's one of the challenges of it. I think as far as not being as approachable mm -hmm. is because it is a big commitment because you're, you're treating just like a full-time therapist. You're also reading and digesting a ton of literature and, and resources you're actively learning. So it's like your brain is constantly going, uh, and you're being challenged in multiple ways. Like you have to teach and, uh, present in front of faculty, uh, give, give presentations. Um, and you know, just a lot of, a uh, lot of other responsibilities that are kind of wrapped up into that. So it's very time consuming. It was at a, a very, uh, interesting point in my life we the day that we were moving from St. Augustine where I was going to school the day we were loading up the moving truck to move to Tampa so I could start the residency it's the day we found out we were having our son so no kidding yeah the day I'm like got a box in my hand and Robin comes up and holds up a positive pregnancy test and <laughs> I'm just like oh, I cannot think about this right now <laughs> oh, that's funny so that just like added a, a whole new dimension to that whole experience and didn't they know that you like to you know that, that you you can't just go like that you 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 need to have a set plan I didn't, told them like that didn't I'm a man of Man, Come structure. on, structure. <laughs> so, Mason, I'm sure there's PTs out there that would love to pick your brain on on some some things. Um, I plan on having you back on this podcast quite frequently. I, I think cool. there's a ton of other things that I want to talk to you about. Uh, but I really wanted to get people's minds thinking today about about clinical education and um, and how to navigate that as a therapist. Um, we will probably have another talk about this, maybe part two, but, um, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, um, now, you know, via email, what's the, what's the best, best way for them to do that? Uh, best email is, uh, mason.stags at totaltherapyfl.com. That's my, my work. And uh, that's business Mason, M-O-S-O-M-A-S-O-N dot S-T-A-G-G-S. Yes at totaltherapyfl.com. We'll put that on, on the bottom here so that, that um, it's easy to find. Perfect. And, uh, well, Mason, that was awesome, dude. Thank you uh, for her coming on. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of good good conversations. We probably made some some enemies, but hopefully we made a couple friends too. So All right. Good happy stuff. to have you on, bud. You've been listening to Rehab This. Our passion is to redefine the business of physical therapy and to help you by unraveling the secrets to success. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to like, rate, and review. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram at RehabThisPT. See you next time.